following is a presentation of Gallery Church Downtown, part of a family of neighborhood churches seeking to display God's greatness to the world. For more information, please visit gcbdowntown.com. The scripture can be found on page 10264 in the Bibles that can be found beneath those tables. We'll be reading from John 3, verse 1 through 13. Now there was a Pharisee, a man named Nicodemus, who was a member of the Jewish ruling council. He came to Jesus at night and said, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher who has come from God. For no one could perform the signs you are doing if God were not with him. Jesus replied, Very truly I tell you, no one can see the kingdom of God unless they are born again. How can someone be born again when they are old? Nicodemus asked. Surely they cannot enter a second time into their mother's womb to be born. Jesus answered, Very truly I tell you, no one can enter the kingdom of God unless they are born of water and the Spirit. Flesh gives birth to flesh, but the spirit gives birth to spirit. You should not be surprised at my saying, you must be born again. The wind blows wherever it pleases. You hear its sound, but you cannot tell where it comes from or where it is going. So it is with every born, everyone born of the spirit. How can this be? Nicodemus asked. You are Israel's teacher, said Jesus, and you do, do you not understand these things? Very truly, I tell you, we speak of what we know, and we testify to what we have seen, but still you people do not accept our testimony. I have spoken to you of earthly things, and you do not believe. How then will you believe if I speak of heavenly things? No one has ever gone into heaven except the one who came from heaven, the Son of Man. May God bless the reading of his word. Praise the Lord. Good morning, everyone. If I might, let me just read one passage of scripture and then let's go before the Lord. I'm just going to pull one verse out of the reading we just had out of John 3, uh, verse 3. And the verse reads, I'm reading reading in the King James, Jesus answered and said unto him, Verily, verily, I say unto thee, except a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. And for the this brief moment that I have with you this morning, I want to teach out of a thought, a simple thought, um, the N-word. The N-word. Let us pray. Most gracious and eternal Father, Lord, we thank you for your presence this morning. There is no doubt that you are here with us. Uh, Your word declares it where it says there were two or three are gathered in your name that you would be in the midst. But God, I think that this morning you are here even beyond just uh, adherence to your word. God, you are here in expectation. You're here in expectation of worship. You're here in expectation of your disciples who are gathered here to lift up your name, to study your word, to draw closer to you, God, that we might receive that which we need in order to have the impact in the earth that you've called for us to have. There is no doubt that the need is great. Um, One might say that the harvest is ready, uh, but the laborers are often too few. And so God, stir us up, inspire us that we might be your hands, we might be your feet, we might be your vessels in the earth to advance your kingdom and to win souls to your kingdom. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Amen. The N-word. So I don't know if there was a competition, but 
um, I would imagine that I would win the competition for most provocative title. <laughs> and so that if you are a little bit uh, drowsy this morning or if you, the coffee wasn't just hitting, I think I might have your attention this morning. It's like, where is he going with this? Um, I know that you've been in John for a period of time now, and so I'm quite sure there's been some backdrop. But if I can, um, I, I do want to just speak a little bit about this gospel of John just to kind of give us some context of, of where we're going. Um, it can be said that the gospel of John is the most beloved and most used of all the gospel accounts. For most believers, whether you're a child or an adult, it is the entry point to Jesus. It wouldn't be unusual to hear John's gospel being taught in children's church and the main sanctuary at the same time, and sometimes with the very same subjects. This truth is reflected in the elementary nature yet undeniable power and significance of a John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believeth in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. So simple, but at the same time so profound. But the paradox of John's gospel is that while it is attractive because of its simplicity, at the same time it possesses a depth that challenges even the most committed scholar. <clears throat> From a literary interpretation perspective, if we were looking for a visual, um, borrowing from both Revelation 4 and Ezekiel 1, if we were looking for a visual interpretation of what the Gospels look like, um, we could say that the Gospel of Matthew can be interpreted as that of a man representing Jesus' humanity. Or Mark could be an image of a lion representing Jesus' royalty. And Luke would be one of an oxen representing the priestly character of our Lord and his sacrifice for our redemption. But if you had a visual interpretation of John, it would be more commonly considered that of an eagle because maybe more so than any of, the other, any of the synoptic Gospels, John's account flies higher and sees farther than the rest. And so by allowing us to eavesdrop on these profound discourses that are throughout John, whether they be with the Samaritan woman at Jacob's well in chapter 4 or here in chapter 3 with Nicodemus, John allows us to peer into the eternal truths and mysteries of God and his son Jesus Christ. But the, but the connection to John's gospel is deeper than that. While most of the New Testament can be considered evangelistic to some degree, John is not bashful or inhibited about his intentions for penning his account. John writes in chapter 20, verses 30 and 31, and I paraphrase, look, trust me, Jesus did a whole lot more stuff and that just didn't make the book, but what I did bear witness to and am now sharing with you it's not just for a good bedtime story. It's not just for your entertainment. I'm sharing this with you so that you might believe, just like me, that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you might have life through his name. So here in this third chapter, verse 1 reads, Now there was a Pharisee, a man named Nicodemus, who was a member of the Jewish ruling council. John makes sure that we know that Nicodemus is a Pharisee and a ruler of the Jews. Um, it can be said of Nicodemus that he possessed the three Ps. He was powerful, he was prestigious, and he had position. And I can imagine that if Nicodemus lived in Baltimore, um, he would have no problem getting an appointment in City Hall. 
Matter of fact, they might have had a sign on a cobblestone for somebody of Nicodemus' stature. Um, Nicodemus was not merely an elder. He was a member of the Sanhedrin, a council of 70 elders that served as the highest court among the Jews. Not only did Nicodemus sit on this court, but as we later discover in verse 10, he was also considered a teacher of Israel, which meant that he was a trained theologian. Nicodemus literally had clout. He had stature. The Pharisees, of which he was one, were the most rigorously religious of all the Jewish groups. Of all of the various factions, they would have been the group that was most intent on following the letter of the law. They were considered model Jews. And so in verse 2, we find that here Nicodemus comes to Jesus at night. And when I read that, I'm like, well, that's rather curious. Was it, he not able to get an appointment with Jesus during the daytime hours? Were they not able to get their schedulers to connect and, and, and find a lunch date or a breakfast date at, at Starbucks? But maybe you might be of the opinion, as some are inclined, that these two busy men just couldn't get their calendars straight. And for some reason, daytime just didn't work. Uh, Nicodemus couldn't be right on Wednesday, and Jesus couldn't meet on Thursday, and they just couldn't connect. But while that may be true, I'm not buying it, something tells me that it wasn't necessarily in Nicodemus' best interest to be inquiring of Jesus during a time when eyes and attention could be drawn to him. So the night provided the cover that Slick Nick desired. (laughs) And so the word of God says that Nicodemus came to Jesus at night, and he says, Rabbi, we know that you're a teacher who has come from God, for no one could perform the signs you're doing if God were not with them. So Nicodemus ingratiates Jesus by calling him rabbi or teacher, which was a major shift for he and his fellow elders because they knew for a fact that Jesus didn't come through their schools of ministry. Um, they couldn't put their fingerprint on Jesus. They couldn't take credit for his teaching and his impact in the region. Not only did Nicodemus acknowledge that Jesus was a teacher, but the level of miracles that Jesus performed made it clear that God had to be with him. And so in response to Nicodemus, Jesus replies, Very truly, I tell you, no one can see the kingdom of God unless they are born again. I would imagine Nicodemus giving Jesus his props, figured that, you know, he should probably expect a similar salutation and response from Jesus, you know, recognizing, you know, Nicodemus' status and the fact that he was bold enough to visit Jesus and acknowledge the hand of God on him. But ignoring the attempted flattery from Nicodemus, Jesus just cuts right to the chase. Not only does he get right to the heart of the matter, Jesus answers a question that Nicodemus didn't even ask. Nicodemus didn't even ask Jesus. It's like Jesus just gave him a response, and I can imagine Nicodemus going, but I didn't even ask you a question yet. And who's tell you I would have asked that question? And so when I think of Jesus and his response to Nicodemus, uh, while there is no question that Jesus reflected the character of his father, I'm of the opinion, and you may disagree, that um, Jesus inherited his bluntness and his candor from his mother Mary. And I'm, I'm looking at my wife and my son over in the corner, 
And my son looks like me, and as a matter of fact, he better look like me. But, <laughs> but there are times when I see my son, and he says something or he does something, and I go, yeah, that's Marekka. That is not on my side of the family. That's, that's definitely her side of the family. And so I, when I look at Jesus and his candor and his frankness, that sometimes I go, yeah, that's Mary's side of the family coming out. And it, it, maybe you might disagree, but like when I look at Mary in the previous chapter at the wedding of Cana in response to Jesus' subtle rebuke, if we would look at verse 4 in chapter 2, you know, here Jesus says, woman, why do you involve me? First of all, I don't know what guy would ever call his mother woman. <laughs> like if, if that was the beginning of my ministry, I think I would have had my trial sermon and the eulogy all at the same time. <laughs> it's like, Jesus, no, no. <laughs> you cannot call your mother woman in that tone of voice. But he says, woman, why do you involve me? My hour has not yet come. And I could just imagine, and I could see Mary, you know, most, almost dismissively, you know, almost ignoring Jesus and what he was saying and turning to the servants and going, don't pay him no attention, but do whatever he tells you. And as I was preparing, and I'm, I'm a little bit off, as you probably already gathered, um, I found myself laughing at what I would imagine this interaction between Jesus and his mother could have been. And Jesus talks to his mother. He's like, Mom, why are, you, why are you doing this? You know this is not my time. Why are you calling me out like this? And I can imagine Mary turning to her son with a sly smile going, ha, 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 Mr. Funny Man. Oh, see, you thought it was real funny last week when, remember, you turned my wine into water. Yeah, you, you and your boys thought that was real funny back then. <laughs> but now you want to get me out in public, and all of a sudden, now it's not your time. Oh, but it was your time last week when you were trying to do all these miracles around the house. Okay, Mr. Funny Man. All I know is you better do what these people say because they need you, or I'm going to tell your father on you. But I could just imagine it was probably a time in Jesus' house coming up, he and his mother. And uh, how can you be the, the son of God as a child growing up in the house? I can imagine him, Jesus going around and Mary says, and how many times do I have to tell you, stop walking through my walls with your sandals? <laughs> so it must have just been a time. But I, I know, I believe that Jesus had this frankness about him, had this candor about him that he would just go straight to the point. Even when others were trying to either entrap him, ensnare him, to take him another direction, um, he was reading the intentions of the heart despite what your lips may have been saying. And so in verse 3 again, it says, Very truly I tell you, no one can see the kingdom of God unless they are born again. So here Nicodemus is offering this confession of platitudes before Jesus that tries to skirt the issue and totally dismisses the deity of Jesus. Jesus didn't need Nicodemus to tell him that he was a great teacher, and that was clear, and that it was clear that God was using him. Even blind Bartimaeus could have seen that. What Jesus needed Nicodemus to understand, and by proxy, all that would listen both during Nicodemus's time and even us as modern-day readers of the Bible, is that if you're going to see my kingdom, 
if you're going to inherit God's kingdom, you need to understand this word. If you're really going to inherit the kingdom that God has in store for you, there's a word. Matter of fact, it's an N-word that you've got to understand. And that N-word is that you've got to understand what it means to be newborn or to have a new birth. You've got to know what it means to be born again. You've got to know what it means to be regenerated. Nicodemus, you've got to know what the N-word stands for. Nicodemus didn't want to hear that kind of talk because the new birth is not merely about affirming the supernatural in Jesus. There's a lot of people that do that. There's a lot of people that will affirm the supernatural aspect of Jesus. We could go throughout the streets of Baltimore and find individuals who will acknowledge that. Because there's a lot of people with good religion, but the new birth is not about just having good religion. It's about experiencing that same divine power in our own lives. And good religion just doesn't simply do that. Seeing signs and wonders and being amazed at them and giving the miracle worker credit for them that he is from God, while noteworthy, that doesn't save anybody. Receiving Jesus by faith and allowing the Holy Spirit to activate that transformational power in our lives is what makes old things pass away and all things become new. I even uh, listened to one of the podcasts. I heard Pastor Ellis share the testimony of a father of one of the gallery church's members who God is using to win souls abroad because people are recognizing the healing power of Jesus Christ. But can you imagine if that missionary was just satisfied with just a simple acknowledgement of God and not a confession that Jesus is the one and only true and living God? What if he was just satisfied with a mere reverence that, yes, Jesus is uh, this historic figure and not imploring individuals to acknowledge that he is the only and true Savior? The facts of the healing would be unquestioned, but the overcoming power of the blood of the Lamb and the resulting testimony would never be realized. So in verse 4, Almost flippantly, Nicodemus replies, how can someone be born when they are old? Nicodemus asks, surely they cannot enter a second time into their mother's womb to be born. Nicodemus immediately embraced a literal translation of the image that Jesus painted. He couldn't comprehend the spiritual renewal that Jesus was introducing. See, Nicodemus had no problem calling Jesus a teacher come from God. He had no problem recognizing that God was using Jesus and that Jesus was doing the work of God. What he could not accept was this paradigm shift that Jesus was introducing. The theologian N.T. Wright makes an interesting observation of Nicodemus and the ideology from which he engages Jesus. Professor Wright writes, say that fast three times, in fact, What Jesus says here to Nicodemus is more sharply focused than we sometimes imagine. The Judaism that Nicodemus and Jesus both knew had a good deal to do with being born into the right family. What mattered was being a child of Abraham. Of course, other things mattered too, but this was the basic. Now, Jesus is saying, God is starting this new family. 
in which this ordinary birth isn't enough. For this family, you need to be born all over again. Matter of fact, you need to be born from above. Imagine the ramifications of that to centuries of Jewish genealogy, where all that mattered was the ability to draw a hereditarily produced lineage to Father Abraham. So I can imagine Nicodemus is like, what do you mean I need to be born again? I'm already born in the right family. I'm already in the right lineage. I'm just waiting for my rewards. Jesus' profession changed righteousness from a natural birthright to a spiritual one. And can I digress for just a moment? Because as I was thinking about this, I couldn't help but to think about this rebirth this new birth, this regeneration in the context of the city of Baltimore, and how starkly defined are the prospects of a person in this city depending on where you're born or into what family you're born, how your access is limited based upon who you can draw your family lines to. And if you can't connect to the right family, if you aren't in the right zip code, your access, your prospects, your life, expectancy is different. It's one thing to see it played out in this conversation between Nicodemus and Jesus, but think about how it's played out on the streets of Baltimore every day with our young people. Can you, but can you imagine in Baltimore if there wasn't such a great divide between youth simply based upon your zip code, like a youth and Guilford had the same kind of opportunities as a youth in Sandtown. Or a male who lived in Penn North had the same life expectancy of a male who lived in Roland Park. Not depending on your family that you were born in. And so Jesus answers, very truly, I tell you, no one can enter the kingdom of God unless they are born of water and spirit. Jesus goes on to say, flesh gives birth to flesh, but the spirit gives birth to spirit. You should not be surprised at my saying, Nicodemus, you must be born again. The wind blows wherever it pleases. You hear its sound, but you cannot tell where it comes from or where it is going. So it is with everyone born of the spirit. Clarifying his statement, Jesus informs Nicodemus that he must be born of water and he must be born of spirit. So most most would agree that Jesus is pretty clear when he references the birth by the Spirit. It is the spiritual rebirth. It's regeneration that's initiated by the Holy Spirit that must occur in the life of every believer. Every believer has to be born again. For some, there's a little ambiguity about the birth that is the result of water that Jesus also talks about in these verses. But it would be a mistake to assume that Jesus is simply referring to water baptism, well, that Jesus is referring to water baptism as the instigator of regeneration, just as it would also be an error to not acknowledge that water baptism is a requirement to fulfill all righteousness. In ordinance of the church, water baptism is designed to be a public and visual expression of the transformation that occurs in our life as we are identified with Christ. It is supposed to be public. It is supposed to be exemplary of this relationship that we share with Christ. In baptism, we identify with Jesus' death, his burial, and his resurrection. 
The old nature is dead, and as Jesus was resurrected, we likewise are resurrected out of this watery grave into a new life and start. But it is likely also that Jesus was referring to cleansing or a spiritual renewal that is often associated with this spiritual renewal. And we can find it in Ezekiel chapter 36. And I'll just read uh, these four verses coming out of verses 24 through 28. And Ezekiel puts it this way. For I will take you out of the nations. I will gather you from all the countries and bring you back into your own land. And here in verse 25, I will sprinkle clean water on you and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all your impurities and from all your idols. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. I will remove from your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh, give you a pliable heart, a heart that can be impacted by Christ, a heart that is he can mold. And I will put my spirit in you. This is what Ezekiel says. I will put my spirit in you and move you to follow my decrees and be careful to keep my laws. It sounds like regeneration to me. It sounds like a rebirth to me. Then you will live in the land, and I gave the land I gave your ancestors, and you will be my people, and I will be your God. Jesus goes on further to highlight that activity of the wind in the spiritual renewal. Verse 8, the wind blows wherever it pleases. You hear it sound, but you cannot tell where it comes from or where it's going. And Jesus says, so it is with everyone born of the Spirit. Jesus implies that just like you can't discern the direction of the wind we see in nature, but can only bear witness to its effects, such is the case with the Holy Spirit. You can't control the Holy Spirit or even comprehend his actions, but the proof of his work is apparent. Where the Holy Spirit works, there is undeniable proof of his presence. You don't have to guess whether the Holy Spirit has been there or not. When I think about Jesus' description of how the Holy Spirit is supposed to be active and engaging in movement, it leads me to believe that we should ask ourselves, is there undeniable, is there irrefutable evidence that the Holy Spirit is active in our lives. If there's not, there should be. I mean, we don't have to ask someone, if there's a storm that blows through Baltimore, we don't have to ask someone if the wind came through this area or blew through this area. All we have to do is look, and we can see evidence everywhere that the wind came through. My question to Gallery and even beyond to those who may be listening if someone came to Baltimore looking for evidence that the Holy Spirit was here, if they walked the city to find out if the Holy Spirit was resident in Baltimore or came through Baltimore, could he find it? Could he find it? Could he find evidence that the Spirit, the Holy Spirit is preeminent in this place or there are those who are filled with his Spirit in this place? Would enough stuff be tossed around and strewn and rearranged for that witness to say, oh yeah, the Holy Spirit is here? Would there be enough injustices that are being overturned to say, oh yeah, the Holy Spirit? Would there be enough charity in this city for the, someone to say, oh yeah, the Holy Spirit is in Baltimore? Would there be enough worship that's coming forth from this town for that visitor to say, yeah, this is a place where the Holy Spirit abides? Matter of fact, 
he's still here. Or that person have to search high and low for any proof of his visit or his abiding presence. So not understanding the breadth of what Jesus was relaying to him, Nicodemus asked, how can this be? Nicodemus is confused. He doesn't want to see the imagery that Jesus is presenting to him. And so, um, once again, exhibiting the characteristics of Mary, Jesus throws a little shade at Nicodemus and replies, hold up, Nicodemus, wait a minute. You are Israel's teacher. And do you not understand these things? I mean, very truly, I tell you, we speak of what we know and we testify to what we have seen, but still you people do not accept our testimony. I have spoken to you of earthly things that you do not believe. How then will you believe if I speak of heavenly things? I'm, give, I'm, I'm really giving you milk right now, Nicodemus. And you want steak? No one has ever gone into heaven except the one who came from heaven, the Son of Man. And so Jesus concludes that I'm using analogies that you should understand when I reference water, wind, and birth. If you can't understand these earthly things, what hope is there that you will be able to comprehend heavenly things? So why is the N-word important? Why is newborn and new birth so critical to the life of a believer? Why this shift, Jesus? Why must we be born again? So let me conclude with this. It's out of Ephesians chapter 2, and I'll start at verse 1, but the real focus is verses 4 and 5. And it reads, as for you, as for us, you were dead in your transgressions and sins, in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and of the ruler of the kingdom of air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. All of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our flesh and following the desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature deserving of wrath. But, but check out verse 4. I mean, this is where God shows how much he really loves us. But because of his great love for us, God who is rich in mercy, it's not us, it's not our doing, it's not any goodness in us that puts us in a position to be born again, to be regenerated. It is only God's mercy. It is his love extended to us. This God who was rich in mercy, he made us alive. There's the rebirth. There's the regeneration. With Christ, not independently, but we are now by faith connected to Christ. And that's what quickens us. That's what makes us alive. Because even when we were dead in transgression, it is by grace that we've been saved. Because of God's love for us, while we were dead in sins, and trespasses with no spiritual life. Jesus died for us. And through our faith in him, God raised us from the state of spiritual deadness, giving us new life in him. And not only that, within that, he gives us this great promise that he's going to keep us forever. Because he says to us, and I close with this out of John chapter 10, verse 28. He gives us life to quicken us from our spiritual deadness. He gives us this newness of life. He promises to keep us forever. But in John 10, 28, 
he says, I give them eternal life and they will never perish. And not only that, he strengthens us, he encourages us, he empowers us when he closes and says, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. It's important for our growth, for God to use us for our relationship with Christ, that we know the end word. And let me close with this prayer. Dear Lord, we thank you for the truth of your word, God. Lord, we thank you that your regeneration power, your reviving power, your new birth power is not just something that was exhibited in the first century church, but that your spirit is yet alive. Your spirit is yet calling and beckoning us. Your spirit is yet active in our lives, God. And so it empowers us, oh God, to do your will, God. It empowers us to live a life that is obedient to you, God. Oh God, and while there are many, God, who embrace you for a variety of different reasons, God, but refuse the transformation, transforming power of your spirit, God. Oh God, we embrace and receive your spirit, God. Oh God, we receive it because it has quickened us and it has made us alive in you, God. Oh God, it is not only the justifying power, but it is the power of sanctification because of your spirit, God. We are now able to walk upright before you, God. We are able to have victory over any fiery trial that may come before us, God. And more so, God, it empowers us to be your witnesses in the earth. So, God, while we ask for a revival, a regeneration, a renewing, a new birth in us individually, God, we also ask for that same power that can rebirth this city. God, we ask for your spirit to cause a regeneration in this city. God, there are some who may believe that simply building a new building or building a new school or, or changing the budget will be the renaissance or the revival of the city. God, but we know that if your spirit is unleashed in this city, it will be the revival that this nation is calling for. God, why not use Baltimore to reach the nation? God, why not change the scorn and derision that we've received to change the very nature of this nation? And why not let it start with us? In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.